My name is Ros Ward. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We record the show on Aboriginal land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today's episode is a recording that we made at the event which launched the campaign of the Victorian Socialist candidate for the Upper House in the Northern Metro region, Jerem Small. Jerem, a 30-plus year socialist activist in Melbourne, has some amazing stories uh, to tell and some special guests that joined us when we spoke at the event, Stories of Resistance. So, so my name is Rose Ward and I am in conversation tonight with this person, Jerem Small. I'm also the candidate uh, for the Victorian Socialists in the seat of Richmond. Well, Richmond. Momentarily a Richmond holder, not for too long. Don't care, okay, it's fine, I'm still here. Um, I've been a socialist for uh, quite a lot of time and been involved in a number of campaigns and activities and notoriety in the Murdoch press for my role in uh, the simple demand to keep our schools as safe as we can for people who are gender diverse and have diverse sexualities and relationships and for that crime I was hounded by the Murdoch media, the conservative politicians, many of whom have now passed a little bit by the wayside, Corey Bernardi, George Christensen, so... So we are going to talk about Jeremy and I will, but I just want to say something about the Victorian Socialist campaign so far, because yesterday afternoon I had my best door knock, and, and um, Mutu's going to say something about Greenville and Rural Meadows next week. But I had the best insult, now this is, might sound a bit backwards, but it was the best insult that I've ever had on a door knock since, uh, since we started campaigning in 2018. It was a five-part insult with a fucking in-between-inch word. <laughs> so this guy answered the door and I'm trying to start with, uh, I just want to talk about how the billionaires are fucking getting rich, you know, like I really was doing my best. I didn't mention the election as Jeremy always tells us not to, which is true. <laughs> I said, the fucking billionaires, he's like, no, not listening to it, you're all the same. You're fucking, here we go, five parts, fucking university educated. I was like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking green, fucking teal, fucking HR. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking prick. And I'm like, okay, one out of five. (laughs) The rest fucking no way. Yeah, anyway, that was, that was a highlight. You might enjoy some highlights like that. And then you get the other people who do believe that we're different and we can prove it. And uh, one of the ways I think we can prove that we're different is the calibre of the candidates that we've got who have a chance this election of getting elected. Obviously, we have Liz Walsh, who's a stellar socialist running in Western Metro, but tonight we're here to officially launch the campaign. And, you know, this wasn't sold to you as a launch, but you're here now, so Jess Lenahan lock the doors, you're at another launch event, we're here, and we're launching Jerem Small, we won't smash champagne over his bow, but we will talk about some of his fine stories and achievements, so that's what you're in for, there's no break, there's no interval, you are allowed to go to the top, no, you can do what you want, but we're just going to talk for a bit, and then we can talk to each other for a bit, and then we can, you know, enjoy the rest of the evening. So, let's get started with Jerem. We've also got a few special guests lined up, but that's a surprise as we go. So we'll start with Jerem. Jerem Small, born on the 13th of October, 1966. No, it's not going to just be like that, but Libra. As a resident cultural and natural lesbian, I have to tell you something about Libra. scales and one of the qualities of Libra, no, this is the only connection I can make, is that it's about justice. And actually that's a fucking good connection to Jeremy Small, I think, for people who know him and the stories that we're about to hear. Well, I do share a birthday with Margaret Thatcher, so... (laughs) (laughs) There's a slight hole in that theory, sorry. (laughs) I think, yeah, 
I think that's a good lesson as well, and justice for who is a good question, right? Yeah. right. So, okay, Jeremy, let's get started with your political life. What Can you tell us about some of your um, your early activism? Like, what got you started? What was the first moments that you were like, I really think there's something about the world that needs to change, and who were some of your early political influences? Okay. Maybe three moments. Moment number one, when uh, my sister totally rocked my uh, very sedate teenage world by going along to a Palm Sunday peace march, and this was a shock to me that I had a protester in the family. We were labour voting family, uh, but the idea that you might actually do something active beyond, you know, having progressive social views uh, was a total news to me. Moment number two was when, expanding on that, um, we started a group of us, like the big issues at the time were the threat of nuclear annihilation. There was this far-right maniac called Ronald Reagan uh, in possession of the White House. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was in number 10 Downing Street and in Australia we had a Labor government that talked in different terms to all of that. Um, talked very moderate and, you know, we care about world peace and all the rest of it, but they didn't do anything different and in fact had continue to host US bases. Uh, we're talking about expanding the uranium industry and basically fueling the threat of nuclear annihilation. So, um, yeah, so that was some early sort of political perspectives of mine, I suppose. And with a bunch of high school friends, we organized a, uh, a peace group and proceeded to organize high school walkouts. Years before, Greta Thunberg made it cool, I'll have you know. <laughs> yes, um, so, like, we're going along like that, but really, well, and then along the way, like I did an earnest speech one time and sort of said the only people that benefit from uranium mining, um, you know, the workers don't benefit because it's dangerous, the Aboriginal people get their land stolen. Really the only people that seem to benefit are these giant multinational corporations. And this uh, young woman came up to me after that speech and um, swore at me and said, why are you telling us all that fucking socialist shit for? Which shocked me. And being the earnest young thing that I was, I thought, oh my god, maybe I'm a socialist. I better check it out. And I did, and here I am. So yeah, an idea that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, the, the thing that really, uh, like one of the things, I mean, there's many, many influences, I could, and I'll talk about one or two of them later on, but um, like one thing that really changed my life was meeting the Builders Laborers Federation. Um, this is in Canberra, not known for its radical politics in the early 1980s, mid-1980s. Um, but uh, the song that was playing as people sat down, the Builders Labourer song, it has a line in it um, about driving the wealthy bludgers from this land. And when you walk into a room and it is packed full of working class people, men and women and kids and dogs running around and everything's just normal, and everyone is bellowing at the top of their lungs um, about driving the wealthy bludgers from the land, like that, all of a sudden, that was a big shift for me. So all of a sudden, making a better world, maybe it wasn't just a matter of decent people doing decent things, you know, sooner or later. There was an actual group of people that clearly had power in our society, um, and that um, merging of radical politics and working class power has been, uh, you know, I've got a taste, a tiny taste of it uh, back then, and I guess that's, uh, you know, set me on a journey which has ended me up here. Um, I can tell stories. Anyway, like, I, yeah, just I'll keep half an eye on the clock. So, one, one example. Um, there was a housing crisis in Canberra in the mid-1980s. Surprise, surprise. Not much really changes. And a group of people, I wasn't one of these people. I wasn't um, cool enough, really. But, you know, I knew some people that were involved in a political squat on Northbourne Avenue. Now, if you come into Canberra, that's the main drag as you sort of, you know, head off the Hume Highway and you're heading in towards the city or what the river is of it. And there was a whole bunch of houses there that were derelict and had been left derelict until the developers decided they were going to knock them down and turn them into office buildings. And a group of people occupied about three of them, hung banners out on the main drag of uh, Canberra, and said, we are not moving from this place until every single person on the public housing waiting list is housed. And at that time, it was like thousands. And there was a big political controversy in Canberra. The Canberra government said, look, we'll give you public housing. Don't worry. And they said, no, no, it's not about us. We are staying until every single person on that years-long public housing waiting list is housed. Anyway, so it was a bit of an ongoing issue. One of these days, uh, a bunch of thugs hired by the developers came up and chucked the squatters out of the house, chucked all of their stuff out of the house, and then started making the house unlivable by smashing up the uh, plumbing, like especially the toilets and so on. And uh, there have been some previous connections made between the squatters and the Builders Labourers Federation, who were headed towards deregistration, looking for some friends. So 
one of the squatters sort of pedaled down to you know, put 10 cents in the nearest payphone, called up the Builders Laborers Federation, and within a couple of hours, there was a group of 400 construction workers marching from the massive construction site that was the new Parliament House site, all the way up North Bourne Avenue. The goons who were still in the house took one look at these construction workers and was like, we're going now. <laughs> and then all these construction workers, builders, laborers, and plumbers started looking around and saying, well, these houses are half wrecked. You know, we need some more toilets, we need some more drones. I wonder where we can find them, having just come from Parliament House. So, to me, look, I wasn't there that day, but I knew people that were. And that was, um, this was just how stuff rolled in suburban Canberra at that time. So, yeah, quite a lesson in what working class people can do when, you know, they, they, they have a bit of power, they have their heads up, and they have even a glimmer of radical politics. I mean, there's all sorts of problems you can talk about with the BLF, but, you know, there, there was that glimmer there, and that was enough for me. Yeah, and the other campaign I wanted to throw in <clears throat> at this point is the uh, struggle against apartheid in South Africa. So I wonder if you could uh, give us a sense of what that was like. I mean, that's hard to sum up in two minutes or so, but uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, because the apartheid system in South Africa was a symbol of absolutely everything that was wrong with the world. Like this, you know, uh, regime that regularly killed high school students for protesting um, about the quality of their schooling. Um, and it was also a symbol of everything that was wrong in the world, that this regime was uh, recognised as a legitimate regime by Reagan in the US and Thatcher in Britain and by our own Labor government. That said, oh, we care so much about the black South Africans, but, you know, oh, no, 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 we can't close that racist South African embassy. So that was a regular protest site. And, like, as a, uh, a sort of teenager, I probably would have been 17 or 18 years old, just sitting in a folding chair outside the South African embassy, the Canberra Trades and Labor Council put a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week picket on that place for more than a year. Uh, this is, would have been in 1985 when the black South African class organised. The regime went into crisis, it declared a state of emergency, it never came out of that state of emergency, and um, you know, there were people being shot and arrested by the regime, and the unions in Canberra put a ban uh, on any contact with that embassy. So you just sort of sit there, and a, a plumber or a you know, delivery person, a, a tradesperson would rock up and you say, oh, sorry, mate, trades and labor cancel picket line, and they just go, okay, all right, sweet, and just roll around. And again, like it was just like I just thought that this was normal and how stuff happened. It wasn't until a fair bit later that I realized actually what a special occasion that was. There's a whole story too, which um, Tanya here can tell, because um, she was there that day, when the Builders Laborers Federation, uh, I won't say stole, but uh, appropriated an enormous site shed from the new Parliament House site, and drove it the short distance down to where the South African Embassy was, plonked it on some vacant land, you know, oh, the truck got bogged, oh, we need a mobile crane in, let's grab a mobile crane from the new Parliament House site, got that down, levelled it all up, somehow managed to get it, get it connected to the wiring, and that became the South African Liberation Centre. Um, and again, so just this very ordinary, like this just ordinary suburban Canberra sort of happening, so I doubt that it was even kind of remarked on, um, but seeing that and being part of that is certainly something that stayed with me. Yeah, I know, it's sort of like telling some of these stories of the history is like, <laughs> and how you found all of that to be normal, kind of union, yeah. expected kind of behaviour, and now we think about where we are, that's another story. So you moved to Melbourne in 1988, I can calculate you were 22, it might be a similar experience for some of you here, moving to Melbourne in your early 20s and getting involved in activism, great decision if you did that. Um, and I wanted to invite our first special guest up to talk about that moment where you became an organised socialist and what that's meant for the last, and now that's quite a long time, over 30 years. Uh, so Sandra Bloodworth, if you'd like to come up and people can make Sandra welcome if you don't know. So Jerem can't stop you. Okay, so let's talk about, uh, I guess one of the things we had a chat about for what you might say about Jerem, because there's obviously uh, so much you could say in 30 years of being activists together, but one of the things you remarked upon was the way that Jerem has become a leader in socialist politics is partially about the way that he's crafted 
the ability to lead people through the way he talks about politics. I'm sure many people in this room have had that experience, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation or it's a speech at a rally or it's a talk at a meeting after a rally or some other time. So I wonder if you could say something about sort of how that um, has evolved over time. Maybe we will try this one. Well, yeah, I remember some of those things Darren talked about, but when um, the Jerem joined a socialist group that I was in in 1991 and we worked along inside each other for some time and from what I remember early on, he was at Latrobe just when I was and remarkable to everybody who was an activist on the campus, both of us, these, um, you know, always causing trouble on the campus, Marxists, we both got a prize for our history essays in the honours course and uh, we were being supervised by a right-wing Labor, um, not right-wing Labor, yeah, right-wing Labor academic and uh, that was to everyone's surprise and that actually brought out some of the things that have really stood Jerem in good stead. The sort of way that he can put things together is already done, you know, he's such a storyteller. But uh, the first time I was involved in a serious campaign right with Jerem was the Jabaluka campaign, and you know, one of the few that we've won ever since I was a socialist. And uh, all the things that um, Jared just was able to do, manage so many different groups. Like we were dealing with environmentalists who didn't have a clue really about what you were involved in, in trying to beat North Limited, this multinational, and um, you know, how you defended Aboriginal land. They had no conception of the working class, being a, a, any sort of allies or anything to do, and Jeremy managed all that. He helped organise pickets and you know overnight vigils, vigils that went on for days on end, when we didn't even really mean to vigil all day anyway. And um, he was able to keep the crowd inspired and getting people to speak and making speeches himself. But uh, remarkably, well over a decade since we'd ever been allowed to do a workplace meeting on a uh, on a, you know, in a workplace that we used to do that when I first came to Melbourne in 79. And then it, with the Accord and the Labor government and everything, unions just clamped down and you weren't allowed to do go and have meetings with members. Jerem actually convinced the officials, I think John Cummins, who was, was one of the important people, but Jerem convinced them to let them go and do workplace meetings uh, with the uh, workers up and down St Kilda Road. And they actually came, some of them actually came to some of the blockades. We used to blockade North Limited and disrupt their um, activity. Actually, you can hear about it all on a podcast that uh, Ross did with Jeremy. You can set that up. <laughs> yeah, no, I only read it. Uh, it's one of my favourite podcasts. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm not making it up. <laughs> this is coming from my heart. I'm just so glad to see what, where Jeremy's come to. So anyway, all of that, and then you know, more and more, it became that Jerem really wasn't that much of a natural get up, you know, make a fuss, be the person who wanted to speak or anything. He was actually quite um, self-effacing and not really shy, but but it was obvious he was a storyteller. But anyway, increasingly, Jerem took it so seriously, being a socialist. What does it mean to be a socialist? It means not just being involved in one or two campaigns, little groups of people. It's about a worldview and to carry this worldview, to act on it, to be part of something that really matters and to build something that's going to be able to do something that matters eventually. You have to study. And, you know, Jerem just became so involved in reading, studying, learning history. He became very aware that the history of struggles can involve can you know invoke new ideas, but they can also revive old ideas because in the downturns of the struggles of the 80s, a lot of the traditions of you know standing up to bosses, picketing, protesting, and everything had been lost, and being able to retell the stories and to know what they meant and how they can be interpreted today. And as Ross said, like you can be in a meeting with Jerem and he can explain things in a way no one else thought of. You can be in a um, campaign meeting and he can patiently convince people who never wanted to do what we thought they should do in the first place, you know, because he can draw on the theory, the history he's been teaching himself and learning from others 
and those sorts of experiences is such a good storyteller of being able to remember what the experiences he had actually meant and what they can mean for other people. But as, so the last thing I'd say really is that I think underlying all that, the determination to learn, to use the what you can learn from books, to um, understand the theory that underpins the idea that capitalism can be overthrown, that the working class has to lead that, the idea that society can be organised so much differently, a decent society for everyone, all of that, in, to, to cling on to that in the bad times we went through in the 80s and a lot of the 90s, you really had to um, be serious about learning that theory and Jerem took that to heart. And so like, I really look forward to seeing Jerem in Parliament because unlike like money-grubbing, self-serving opportunists who know nothing, who are not interested in anything about changing the world, they just want to know how they can be important, how they can be you know, the people who are collecting hundreds of thousands of dollars to do nothing and um, you know, being important. When you put that beside, like the absolutely unflagging, passionate commitment to fighting oppression and exploitation everywhere he sees it, but also connecting that to trying to involve as many people as possible, not being contented with small groups of people who might make a righteous stand and moralistically stand up against things, but to really organise and to try to fight. And I think all of that has brought, you know, lots of people have uh, done this beside Jerem, but Jerem is one of the people who has emerged, who I think is quite capable now of being an outstanding parliamentarian, if, if we can get him there, because you just think of that contrast and the passion that Jerem has and the love of the struggle, the determination, this will stand out like an absolute star to anyone who actually is fed up with society. And so I think everyone can have great confidence in being part of the campaign for Jerem and try to get him in because I think all of that experience has come before and we're going to hear more about will actually stand him in good stead in the parliament because he's so principled, he's never going to sell out in parliament as a lot of people have when they were elected as left-wingers. We can stand by that. And the fact that Jeremy's been part of organised socialists now for 30 years actually means that there are a lot of us around to help discipline him if he stumbles. <laughs> and for disciplining us when we lose our heads because we've got someone in Parliament. So um, I really um, encourage you to do everything you can to uh, actually get Jerem into that Parliament. It's not like the Wobbly song that says, bump me into Parliament. In an ironical way about the Labor politicians, we actually want to bump someone into Parliament to begin to try to change the discourse and Jerem will be an expert at that. One of the ways that we talk about Jerem being different to other candidates, and I'm sure many of you, if you've already done a door knock and mentioned him, would, would have said this, we say, you know, he's a construction worker, he's been a construction worker for a long time, or some version of that. So I wanted to get some legit stories about you being a construction worker, <laughs> so we all know that that's, that's, that's right. So. Yeah, just tell us a bit about some of that time, what's it like, what kind of people you worked with, what did he actually do in well, construction? Yeah, um, is that on? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, first of all, I just want to say thanks to Sandra, who is one of my heroes, one of my political heroes, um, for sticking with it and inspiring multiple generations of socialists to also, um, you know, dedicate ourselves to winning a world that is worthy of humanity and worthy of the working class, and which is actually there for the winning as well. So that means a huge amount. In terms of construction, um, yeah, the builds turned red. Um, I was luck very lucky to, uh, through friends and comrades, to get myself a job uh, in commercial construction. And it's, it's a very different world to any other that I've worked in, um, partly because the union is actually still a living, breathing, industrially powerful force in, in some sections of the industry here in Victoria. 
um, and that's usually in the person of a walking shop steward, someone whose full-time job is to walk around the construction site, make sure everything is safe, uh, make sure that you know people are being paid the right amount, um, and you know you can have better shop, shop stewards than others, but on, on a site with a, a decent steward who takes care to involve people, to walk the site, and to, to you know, to emphasise that it's, it's us, like it's our industrial power which is making these things happen, um, you actually notice people walking taller. Um, on a bad site without a steward or where the steward's mainly absent, you know, it's a whole different story. The foreman just cracks the whip and everyone's shit scared to even talk to each other. It's terrible. But, um, like, experiencing industrial power, you know, I've seen it from the outside with the BLF. Um, from the inside, it's a, it's, a very, it's a much more complicated picture than what it looks like, but it's still, it's something different. So... I was never a shop steward, I was never a union delegate in construction, um, but it's the sort of industry where there's always a there's, there's always a fight on about something. Do, how fast do you do the job? Do you do the job safely or not? This sort of off-again, on-again drizzle, this is a, a good, this is a very interesting day for class struggle on the construction site, because you, you don't work in the rain, but if there's one spot, is that rain? Okay, if there's 10 spots, is that rain? So very often I would start a day where people are just working in drizzle and then it sort of becomes sleet and I'm like, oh, come on, like, we got, come on, we need to get those carpenters out of there, they're showing us up, whatever. And you aim to finish the day stronger than you started, you know, more combined, more cohesive and standing up to the foreman. And there's a lot of little battles like that, over payments for dewatering, um, you know, little allowances which are in the enterprise agreement that you don't always get. One particular story, like, I mean, yeah, I could keep you here for a long time, but like one particular story, there was a construction site on uh, Burwood Road, it's part of Swinburne. I think we're building some, uh, is it? Deacon. Oh God, I don't know, down in Hawthorne, right near Glen Ferry Station. Um, yeah, it, is it? Okay, yeah. It was a, a, like a, a, I don't remember what the university was, but it had these massive deep beams. Uh, anyway, it was a very complicated construction site. The company I worked for at the time was pretty much going bust. And everyone was absolutely shit scared that they were going to lose their job. And, and workers that would normally uh, have their heads up were just like really intimidated. As a consequence, the safety on that job was shocking. I, like, I forget the exact figure, but out of a daily workforce of about 120, 130, we had 18 incidents, uh, like bad enough to put in the first aid book in one month. So basically 10% of the workforce. And you know, if you just wake yourself with a hammer, you don't usually bother to put it in the first aid book. This is like, you know, you need a stitch or you need a day off or oh, shit, might be something seriously wrong. One particular day, the uh, woman was berating us about this at our pre-start meeting and it was, uh, look, we've had five soft tissue injuries to carpenters in the last week. This is unbelievable. What are you guys doing out there? Just work safe. And the red mist <laughs> came in front of my eyes and I said, well, it's all very well for you to say that here. But it's a different story out on the job, isn't it? Where we don't have the right tools, and it's push, 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 and we're working in rain, we're working in slush, like, you know, and just called him on it, and kept calling him on it. We kept that fucker there, and then other people started joining in. We kept that fucker there for an hour at this pre-start meeting when he was trying to get us out the door. The whole site was in uproar because, you know, oh my God, you know, where's the laborers? What's going on here? Um, and, like, in the wake of that, there was just, like, all of a sudden everyone had their heads up. What that meant concretely, the steel fixers were being told, oh, you're not to come in on Saturday. Saturday's where you earn your overtime. You know, your hourly rate, it's okay in construction, but it's not that great. And the steel fixers were like, no, fuck that. We're going to come in on Saturday. We're going to demand payment anyway. Uh, a couple of days later, there was a, a problem with the pay, and the entire site did a work to rule. There was no coordination, just everyone did exactly whatever fuck-witted thing the foreman asked us to do. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we need this loading bay lifted from you know, whatever it was, from level six to level seven. Yes, sir, you know, roll it onto it. Yeah, we'll do that. We lift the loading bay up, and then it turns out that the forklift is actually stuck on level six now. Oh, well, you didn't tell us to move the forklift beforehand, you know, so you've just wasted half a day putting the, putting the loading bay up there, you need to load it waste another half a day getting the loading bay down, getting the forklift out. Like, Richard's nodding his head, he knows he's worked in construction, he knows just how much of a stuff up it can be. Everyone all over the job was doing it, and, you know, like the end result, like I think it was September, we had those, I think it was 18 injuries in the workforce of 120. In October, we had one, which was the day before we started this insurrection. And just everyone having their heads up, everyone having the ability to push back against the boss and the confidence to do it, and knowing that we'd get backing from each other, it made a hell of a difference. So, I mean, there's a bunch of, of, of little experiences and, and bigger experiences, which will never make, make the history books, but 
you know, the class struggle plays out in a pretty direct way on construction sites. So it was pretty um, great to be able to contribute where I could, uh, you know, in that setting as well. Yep. Okay, that sounds legit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to get two guests up at once now. So I'm going to actually invite Richard to come up here and also Ali Hogg. And uh, some of you may already make the connection here, or you may not, but you're going to hear a story where we've made the connection, I think it's an important one to make, because we're making that connection in Victorian socialists all the time. Because people think about workers and working class struggle, and they think about construction workers and unionism, and they think that's about a bunch of blokes on a building site fighting for better wages and conditions. But actually, when we talk about socialist politics, we're talking about economic justice and industrial power, but we're also talking about social justice and equality. And so this story of what happened, and it involved Jerem in the centre of it, in the campaign for equal marriage, of which you may know Ali Hogg was one of the leading figures uh, in Australia, was awarded with many accolades for this, and then suddenly has been written out of the fucking fuckwit books that have been written <laughs> We all know the story uh, of Ali Hogg's leadership, and, and Richard over here, who is a crane driver, who um, is going to tell us the story of what happened when I think Jeremy got onto you about a little action that we could um, participate in. Yeah, um, I, I, was, I feel privileged to be sitting here because I was just a small part of the machinery that was put in motion by Jeremy's idea that uh, I think it might have dawned on him that, that given the plebiscite was about to happen, that, that um, no one had witnessed a, a flag hanging on a construction crane maybe anywhere in Australia, maybe in the world, who knew? And he rang me one evening. A rainbow flag, that should be. Yeah. Sorry? A rainbow flag. A rainbow flag, yeah, sorry. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and just prior to Jeremy ringing that the union stood up and said, said that you had stood up and said yes, you know, that, like, you know, vote yes, they, they support inclusiveness. Um, I always often used to cast eyes around and realise that there weren't any people coming out in the construction industry, a bit like the AFL. I mean, they would have been hounded, I'm sure, taunted, you know, pilloried. And, and Jeremy rang me and said, look, how do you think it would go if we put a flag on the hook of the crane? And I immediately thought, yeah, that's priceless. That's just brilliant. Hey, <laughs> because, you know, it would might shit a lot of people, which is great, but might make them think. Um, and so I spoke to our shop steward straight away. He said, oh, I love it. He rang the union in front of me. There was a woman in the union office who said, I'm putting it in the post as we speak. It came out to site. And I thought we were going to put it on our crane because I had a pretty diverse, tolerant crew. I happened to be sitting up in the crane one day, and I peer out at the other crane, and the blokes on that crane who would not have liked that flag on their hook. Well, they had one young rebel who worked with them, and he, he put it on the hook without them witnessing it. And I'm there with my camera ready going, this is brilliant, because as the hook came up and the driver saw it, I thought steam was going to come out of the cabin. And, and I just thought, that was even better than us putting it on our hook. Yeah. And about the next, like, like it created ructions on site. I worked for IMD. Uh, there were a lot of people who were not particularly tolerant. I think the, the younger people were more tolerant. There were phone calls to our boss, like it was the biggest former company in Melbourne. They had a thousand employees. Hasa, the builder, I think, were pretty cool about it. They were sort of younger folks. And I'm sure in 10 or 15 years they'll, with pride, put it in their brochure yeah. saying, look, you know, put it the haste of crane with the, you know, we stand for diversity. And um, so I went up and there would have been numerous calls to our boss and there were um, to say, get this bloody flag off the crane and all that. But by, by then it had been up for two or three days. I'd taken photos and sent them out. Various people I know, probably quite a few here, sent them around wherever, and, and it was fantastic. And the next, one fellow in particular, a really good shop steward, not on our site, but came up to me a few weeks later, nearly in tears explaining his son was gay, had never never felt like coming out of construction. It just, it just 
it would nearly ruin you, your working life. Yep. But because of what we've done, and being a ruckus at the first meeting said in a year, where people were going, oh, we don't want to support that rubbish, you know, and, and he let it go on for a bit, then stood up and said, in fact, my son's gay. And other people stood up and supported him, and the blokes, the, fellas, the people who were decrying the notion, ended up backpedalling, sitting down and shutting up. Yeah. And, and a lot of people came out in support of, 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 of tolerance, of inclusion and everything else, and it was great to see. And it came from this gentleman here. Without that idea, that flag wouldn't have gone up. So, yeah, thank you. Ali, you could just say something about how that landed in the in the yeah. campaign more broadly. Yeah, well, it can't be underestimated how acts like this had an impact on the campaign, but also society more broadly. I think that um, what might seem like a symbolic, as uh, like a simple act of solidarity, um, it might seem to some people that it's just um, or exactly that symbolic. It doesn't mean anything, but it helped open up. Like, like Richard gave some great examples of how it helped open up discussions in the workplace and it helped change people's minds in the workplace. And like acts like this really helped the campaign from going, from being so more insular, from being um, a campaign of, like it started off so a lot smaller. And then the fact that people started having more and more of these discussions meant that the campaign was able to be one that was, that actually meant something to more and more people and it was actually, it was able to spread, it was able to become more of a mainstream campaign, which was really important. I remember right from the beginning, Jerem was always pushing for unions to be involved. Like the campaign initially had like nowhere, people like around just always remember the campaign being supported by a majority of people, but that was not always the case. Um, in the early years, a majority of people opposed marriage equality and there was people like Jerem that were constantly saying to our workers, like saying to pit workers to make sure you bring, encourage your unions to come along. And it was actually the CFMEU that brought their flags first, I remember. And that was a really big deal because it was usually just like a handful of queers that were coming along to these rallies. And it meant that it was seen, it started to be seen as more of a broader issue and like we couldn't even convince like a lot of people in the queer community to support this campaign but when like when it became more of a mainstream issue people realised that it's not just about your own individual feelings about how you feel about marriage equality but it's a political issue, it's about equality and people's rights and I think that's one of the great things about Jerem and the Union like and Jerem's politics Jerem was able to see that it's an issue of people's human rights and that is something that the union has stood for for decades and decades and that, um, that marriage equality was an issue um, that wasn't any different to that and so it was a struggle for human rights and yeah and it was just it was an amazing like people loved it it was the, and also one of the other things around that time I think that um, for the first time the firefighters um, changed their vote from being to, to the Labor Party to the Greens because the Labor Party um, didn't vote for marriage equality. So it was like, a lot of people seem shocked by this, but I think that it comes from, like, it was the workplaces where they were the most unionised that people were able to see that. Thank you so much, Ali. And Richard's travelled from where did you come from? Uh, Warrigal. Warrigal. To be here to support Jared. So. Our comrades across the world. I remember a few years ago I introduced Jeremy at a meeting, and I don't know what was going on, but I, there was a, I made a terrible slip in my introduction, and Jeremy looked at me. I was like, yes, that is a correct look, because I introduced him as an industrialist organiser. <laughs> I know. And I meant industrial organiser, I don't know where it came from.
<laughs> I have no truck with the industrial. <laughs> uh, anyway, so he he's been an industrial organizer for some time, and that doesn't sound like it's like I don't know what that means. A lot of people would hear that and probably thinking, what is that? So I just wanted to say a couple of things about what that means, and then we'll get someone to tell a story about that. Sure. Um, well, and, yeah, and thanks so much, Ali and Richard, for making the effort to come along as well. I could tell you a lot of stories about flags. It's been a minor obsession of mine, but anyway, <laughs> maybe for afterwards. Because it's a source of enormous pride to construction workers, you know, as construction workers. Every Conservative government has wanted those damn flags down. Peter Reese tried it, gone. Tony Abbott tried it, gone. All these bastards have tried it. The flags are still there and the union's still there. So it's it's sort of actually a big deal, like, you know, for unionised workers, what's hanging on the end of that crane. Anyway, I've got some very involved stories involving flags, but maybe uh, maybe afterwards. But yeah, so, um, and it's a little thing, but yeah, anyway, yeah. Industrial organiser is actually, I think, the best job in the world. Um, I get to, like, what sort of got me into this in the first place was what can you do with radical politics at the point of production? Like, the actual workers in the workforce. It's not just, you know, unions with nice rainbow flags on their website. No, let's get it into the workplace. Let's cause a controversy. Let's, you know, let's push it a bit. Um, and being an industrial organiser is an opportunity to do that, uh, you know, every day. And sometimes that's stuff that's never going to make the headlines, like, you know, working with one comrade um, who, um, you know, maybe for the first time in their life is actually standing up for themselves and their fellow workers and winning thousands of bucks in back pay. Like, that's, that's worth doing. And working out a way to do that, that it's not just one comrade being the you know, superhero, I'll put the form in, but getting everyone in that workplace involved. Let's all sign the damn form. Let's all confront the boss together, you know? So it's a collective, so, because at least as, as important as the fix itself is how you get that and that feeling of collective strength. And sometimes that's a much more high profile thing, like working with this legend, Kath Larkin, um, our candidate over here, like um, just, I mean, she's got a very, like anyway, like I'm sure I learned more of Kath than Kath learned of me, but working with her, like just sort of workshopping stuff and as a mentor and talking through scenarios, what's so-and-so saying in the tea room, okay, what's these grizzled old union veterans saying, um, to um, you know, play some role in helping Kath to um, pull off the first rail strike in this town in 18 years, I think it was actually, the half-day strike back a few years ago. So, uh, Walk out a little bit taller and seeing it as a down payment on the sort of society that we create. So that's part of the job anyway. Yeah. yeah. So you basically help people who are union activists in their workplace get organised together and that can be anything from like, as you said, an individual trying to make sure that people are getting their entitlements at work to trying to get delegates in the RCB to get together and organise an actual strike. So it's, you know, it is a vastly interesting collection of stories and important activity. Please do speak to Jeremy afterwards about more of these stories. Well, speaking of, I worked with this legend as well pretty closely yeah. in 2020 when Ros played a big role in leading uh, with Katie, I think is here, anyway, a bunch of people leading actually the biggest rank and file revolt in an Australian union in a hell of a long time when yeah. the union leaders in the tertiary education union tried to impose a 15% wage cut on that entire sector. Um, and so, yeah, having a good pair of jogging shoes and racing to just keep pace with Alma, Liam, Roz, Katie, like all of these, you know, like established unionists. Uh, and we killed them. We, you know, we won. Like 15%, that never happened across the country because of the shit that we did. Anyway, just There's a lot of legends in the room. There's another one coming up now, who's actually right in the thick of a dispute, and that's Viraj. Can we make Viraj? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Viraj, you're one of the people that Jeremy's been, you know, has talked to over the years of a few different uh, disputes. So I wanted you to just tell us a bit about what that's been like working with Jeremy. And then we can talk about what people can do to support your current activity. Yeah, before starting that one, when I walk in here, Ranga said, make sure you do not talk too formal, try to be more casual. <laughs> I asked permission if I have to go court, some of the things from Jeremy can be formal, sorry. And also, 
what Jerome said about the construction industry and all these fights happening in the 80s and 90s, I'm really proud to and lucky to work in a place. We still have little bit remaining power. Four days ago, we put an industry election, no eight ton forklift in my workplace, and the bosses uh, bought some three, five ton of forklift. It took, unfortunately, it took five hours to me to give the permission for them to start because I had to check every nut and bolt. <laughs> and also, when it's come to the flag, we're talking about our next EBA meeting on Tuesday morning. We are expecting to put a new claim as we want to put CFM new flag on site. Yeah. All right, when I first uh, met Jerem, after refugee rights rally, of course, he asked me about the work. So my workplace wasn't different to any other workplace that time. We were a unionized site, majority of the workers, in the union, so of course they're paying their dues weekly. Other than paying due, workers at the bargaining time come to the mass meeting, listening to your experienced organizers, listening to your expert delegates, and most of them voting as union prefer. So when I first met Jerem, Jerem was angry and <laughs> shocked, but not surprised. When I said to him, Jerem, we, I'm pretty sure Sandra was around that too. I said, Jerem, we just signed an agreement that the, our new labor hire from now on, all, sorry, all the casuals, we get $10 less per hour to doing the same job as we are doing now. So let me quote what Jerem said. Here, Jerem started talking with the importance of both looking at up at our vision of a socialist society, the working class democratically running the show. And then also looking all the way back down to our own feet and working out what's the very next step. Big or small, we need to take to get there. From then on, he helped me to take all these steps. Big steps, small steps. One of the steps were handful of us members knocking on the union uh, office door with a letter from the membership. So then uh, after a couple of years when management threatening us with bringing labor hire, we uh, make another small step. We all were wearing a bright pink uh, sticker saying no labor hire. Ended up with a big result now suddenly 500 workers wearing the same sticker. A few more little steps from there and we were out on strike. On a Monday morning, Jerem's rusty yellow Torana broke down on the truck's <laughs> at the Woolworth's massive warehouse. That's a tendency to do that. <laughs> Despite it's not the bargaining time, workers were picketing the joint, chanting no labor hire. Jerem was there standing next to me when workers thrown out all the notices from fair work, ordering them to go back to work into the fire barrel and say, please continue picketing. <laughs> When all the shelves getting empty, Woolworths management being forced to come to an agreement with the workers to restrict labor hire on that side. So the whole strike was very successful because no labor hire on that side. Okay, I now work for a plasterboard company, plasterboard manufacturer, where all the workers are members of the CFMU. So we are bargaining right now, and we are on some industrial action now. So the industrial actions will continue from tomorrow. But just want to say uh, one thing before I finish. When I first started there, when a forklift attach came off, and management attempted to blame the operator with the support of corrupted delegates and the uh, 
well-connected health and safety reps, Jerem helped me to find the next step. Talking to the other workers, organizing them to come together to hold the company to the accountability of providing the work safe place. Where the entire fleet is grounded until all forklifts are tested. So that's for the whole day, we send all the trucks back and costing company the millions. <laughs> so as all other my comrades said, Jeremy is a fighter. He's always on the side of workers fighting back. He will stand up to the powerful and fight for us. He's a champion of organizing grassroots. Right steps he made, not only with me, but with several of our other comrades, ended up in multiple industries, resulted better wages and conditions. So let us take the right step. Let us send Jerem, a fighting socialist, to the parliament, where he will use his position to build the fighting working class movement we so desperately need right now. support you, there's an activity happening tomorrow, I believe. Yes, so, tomorrow, the yes, so we started our industrial actions last Wednesday. Uh, CFMU fully supporting our actions. The actions are two hours stoppage, which I personally believe not going to move the management. So our next meeting with management on Tuesday. So our next stoppage tomorrow, 11.30. We want a big and loud meeting tomorrow to show the management where we are. We are 75% members and out of 75 workforce and we are 100% unionized. So I ask all the comrades, whoever come, come there 11.30, 47 Turner Street, Port Melbourne and show us, then we can stronger showing, sending a message to the management. So, Jeremy, what has that kind of story got to do with running for Parliament? So let's start make these connections as we start to get to the point of getting you into Parliament. Like, what's the, that kind of case study of Viraj's experience got to do with you being a member of the Upper House for the Northern Metro region? Good question. Um, <laughs> because that is one small example of what a living, breathing socialist movement can do. Like, I mean, Sandra talked about the importance of theory, which is something that I've had to learn and actually have to keep relearning um, in my socialist uh, life. Um, but th there's nothing quite like that, like the, the ideas of socialism explain working class life and working class struggle like no other set of ideas. That's why quite a small number of socialists can have an absolutely profound impact on particular struggles, because if you've got your eye on those lofty heights, like if you don't have that eye on those lofty heights of class struggle, you're going to end up doing something pretty strange, like, you know, administering capitalism or working for GetUp or, you know, just... <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a million bad ways to go, so it's really crucial to keep your eyes on the prize, on, you know, the workers are always the solution, no matter how big the problem. Management is always the problem, even if they're treating you nice that day. Um, a whole body of theory and history that can inform you. Um, a socialist movement can bring a whole lot to every concrete struggle. The more, we need more virages. We need more people who are educated, actually in Sri Lanka by a socialist group. Um, and, you know, people like me who were educated by a socialist group when I eventually, um, you know, after years, uh, got around to joining. Like, we need a bigger socialist movement and Victorian socialists use many things. Like it's a way of putting a principled anti-racist in parliament. It's a, it's a way of giving a, you know, kicking to the billionaires. But I think one of the main things that it is, is a way of rebuilding socialism as a walking, living, breathing, talking, fighting, controversializing political current in Australian political life. There's, there's, been, Austra there's been a socialist current in Australian political life pretty much, you know, like forever, like you know, for well over a century. But in recent decades, it's been pushed very much to the margins. Um, you know, that's a whole sort of discussion as well. Victorian socialists is a chance to do something that we haven't been able to do for many, many decades, which is to get someone down into enemy territory on Spring Street to use that platform, 
um, you know, to call out the lies, to call out the hypocrisy, and to see what we can do in terms of re rebuilding a socialist movement in the working class suburbs of Melbourne, which is something that no socialists have even been in a position to attempt to do for many, many years. So, like, so, yeah, I mean, like, Viraj's story is, like, I just love it in all sorts of ways. I've learned so much from you, Viraj, as well. Um, anyway, there's a whole story, but, like, as an example of what a socialist movement can actually bring to working class life, and Victorian socialists is all about that. Yeah. Questions. Um, this, the penultimate question is: uh, Tell us a story that will inspire people to get out and campaign. Electioneering might not be people's natural instinct. So, what's good about it? What's been good about it for you? Who have you met? What's the highlights? Okay, well, not my insult from the beginning. I don't think that works. <laughs> do, do a better story. Like the, yeah, the. You can, like, as Andrew referred to, like, I'm not this naturally sort of outgoing, you know, like, just, I've had to learn a lot through being a socialist and how to politically intervene. So, like, now, like, and it's, and it's worth it because, you like, you get an experience looking at people in the eye, telling the truth, which is we are being robbed blind by these billionaires, by their allies, by the political system, by capitalism, and we can do better than this. And throwing something at people and getting a response. I'm just never going to get sick, sick and tired of that. Even if once in a while you do get someone that just wants to shout about the whole political establishment and you're there as a representative of the political establishment, yeah, yeah, yeah. don't take it personally, it doesn't happen that often, but you know. Um, so, like, some other stories. Like, and sometimes, like, I've been around Broadmeadows, this is a couple of campaigns ago, and they're just knocking on doors and, God, I'm just lacking a spark, or maybe it's too cold outside, so people want to close the doors early. And then the second last door I knocked on was this young uh, woman, like, I don't know, teens or in her 20s or something, in a hitcher, and she was sort of leaning in the, you know, in the door and, you know, listening to my rave, and she sort of hits this thing about, like I mentioned the thing about, we will only take the, the wage of a nurse if we're elected, um, not the sky-high salary of a politician. And she just looks sort of mystified and then disgusted and says, are you telling me that politicians get paid more than nurses? <laughs> I love moments like that through between. It is actually fucking disgusting that politicians get paid more. Uh, you know, like, this is something that just makes sense, you know, in terms of working class people, but no one ever damn well says it. And so you get experiences like that. And then the next door, um, two doors up or whatever, was this young guy who'd just been laid off from a, uh, the Hume warehouse in, uh, uh, in Broadmeadows uh, by Woolworths and was telling him the story of uh, the Tamil workers who had, uh, you know, been trying to unionise in the waste industry. There'd been a massive explosion in that area just a, a month or two before. And his face just crinkles in disgust. And that's, he's a white guy, young, sort of angular guy, you know, looks like me, but not quite as bald. But he's, and he's just like, you know, that is just disgusting. Like the people, you know, these bosses just think they can treat people different because they're brown. That's just disgusting. And so, like, you have occasions like that where you're just reminded that working class people know where their bread is buttered. They know, they have some sense of how the world works. And yet, there's all sorts of bombardment and media and mystification and all that sort of shit, but you can have experiences like that. And the opportunity to, to try to knit those people together into a socialist movement, that's what we're talking about. Like, I mean, you know, there's a million moments, but I think we're running out of time. Um, like, a, um, like, you know, two or three from Craigie Byrne early voting in, in the state election. Um, a guy who comes up late in the day um, and he says, oh, excuse me, do you have an office? And I say, oh, and I point at what's well, actually 10 years old Corolla that I'm driving around and say, look, oh, that's the campaign office at the moment. And he says, oh, look, it's because my mum wants to make you some sweets. And he tells the story. He was doing the um, translation into Derry. Uh, the night before, you know, he got all of the how to votes from all of the parties and he's doing all of the translation and he reads a part of my how to vote that says all of our candidates are anti-racist activists and at that point his mum stops the meeting and says no, you don't have to read anymore, this is the guy we're voting for. Um, so, you know, that's a hell of a thing to have someone's trust placed in us like that. You get moments like that. You get a nurse at Craigie Bird early voting who is just full of despair at the state of the hospitals, the promises by Andrews, we've got these legislated ratios, thanks Stan, but we're not working to ratio, there's no staff available, everyone is just ground down and overrun, um, and, I was, and you know, and she's looking at me, look, what can you do about it? And so, look, 
As one person in Parliament, as two people in Parliament, we're not going to be able to do much, but I can promise you this, we will make a fight about it. We will call out the lies and democracy and demand greater funding and, you know, like, put, give you a voice. And she comes out after and she says, okay, I voted for you. You better do what you say. And I say, yeah. And you better chase me up. Two weeks, if I get elected, I want you to call my office after two weeks and say, what the hell have you been doing? Why are you raising hell about the state of hospitals? How many times have you visited one? How many nurses have you talked to? How many solutions have you come up with? Because working class people know a lot of the solutions, but they're just, you know, denied a voice in the system. So you'll have experiences like that. Um, yeah, and all of which is, you know, little concrete steps towards the bigger aim that we've got, which is rebuilding the socialist movement in this country. That's why you should campaign. Coming to the doorknob next weekend in Broadmeadows, if you clap then, this will be. Um, Alright, like my last question, we've got a couple of announcements after this, so don't move immediately. My last question is, do you have dreams or nightmares about actually being in Spring Street and what that's like? But, do you have, have you actually thought about what it would be like that day one of Parliament, you know, when you're at fucking member of the place. What are you going to actually, like, what is maybe the first thing that you're going to do, or the first couple of things that you've thought about if you win? When you win, I mean when you win. Well, uh, it's an important distinction between if and when. Um, everyone should know this is a winnable spot that we're going for. Yes, it's nice to have a campaign. Yes, it's nice to talk socialism, put hundreds of thousands of pieces of socialist literature in people's letterboxes and hands, have those discussions, but the whole point of us doing that is to actually win a spot in Parliament. Um, and the person, like, you know, multi-member electorates, Northern Metro, there's always two Labor, always one Green, always one Liberal, unfortunately, and that fifth seat is a lucky dip. The woman who has that seat at the moment, Fiona Patton from the Reason Party, got 3.2% got three point two percent of the vote last time for Northern Metro. That's all the way from Sydney to Craigieburn. Victorian Socialists got 4%. So we're actually in the mix. Just the preferences didn't work out the right way. So, like, it, it matters a lot how many people we have active. Um, what question? What do I do on the first day? Number one, like you said, I have, well, yeah, anyway, it takes a bit of getting used to. I love my job. The idea of working down in freaking Spring Street, uh, surrounded by every scumbag in the state, and their carpet baggers and hangers on and all the rest of it, like, yeah, it's not this, oh, great, you know, the parliamentary buffet. <laughs> it's, it's not like that. Um, but, it, but it's a hell of an opportunity, um, you know, for the movement. Thing number one I would do is find a picket line, because there is nothing more important than workers taking action. Um, big thing number two I would do is to turn up and to keep turning up. And even campaigning, you meet people that are shocked. It's, oh my God, I've lived in this house for 24 years. No one has knocked on our door and proposed what they say and asked for an opinion. And doing that, like, you, you meet all sorts of people who are affected by things in the suburbs. like. Yeah, right. yeah, anyway, like, just, the, the Builders Labourers Federation, I've actually got a sticker at home that says, join the BLF, the union that turns up. Like, there are too many people in politics that spend their time down in Spring Street just messing around and doing deals and all the rest of it. Working class people have voted you in, you should turn the hell up and see what's happening in their life and work out what campaigns you can run, whether that's on toxic waste, whether that's on amenity, the fact that these massive suburbs grow and there's not even, you know, there's not even a bus service and all the rest of it. Whether that's more big picture stuff, like, you know, but yeah, turn up and keep turning up and making a contest in those, uh, in those places. Number three is get the hang of parliamentary procedure. You do not want to fall victim to what uh, Frederick Engels called parliamentary cretinism, which is, you know, thinking that parliament is the be all and end all of, of parliamentary life. But you also don't want to fall victim to something that Lenin called dull-witted flunkyism. <laughs> if I'm ever a dull-witted flunky, please slap me. Um, and by that he meant people that get up and give pompous left-wing speeches, but when it comes to the vote, which is one of the main things you do in Parliament, you're just AWOL, you're just somewhere else. You're just, oh, well done, let the, you know, the perfect be the enemy of the good, you know, like pass some piece of crap legislation, which in my opinion is actually what the Greens have done recently on climate. Um, so, like, but you need to know the rules in order to know exactly how you can use uh, that, that, that platform. 
And then the final thing, I suppose, is just work out what the hell we do to, like, because we meet all sorts of decent people, all sorts of decent fighters on those doorsteps and on those polling booths. How do we knit them into a socialist movement? Can we knit them into a socialist movement? What are the steps towards that that will help us to do that? And that's a task that will involve every single person in this room and plenty of other people besides. Before I get around to any of that, though, I think we we will definitely be having a big celebration if either me or Liz gets elected or both, um, because we will have achieved something for the socialist movement in this country that no one else has been able to do for decades. So. I think somewhere in our policy platform it says give us a hundred days in office and we'll show you a hundred ways to resist. So I don't think we want to be lazing around thinking, oh, I'm in Parliament now, you know, like, no. Nah. It, it, will, it will take a shit ton of work to make anything of these positions. Um, so, yeah, really looking forward to that um, and to the campaign with all of you legends. Yeah. That was Stories of Resistance with Jerem Small in conversation with me, Ros Ward, your host here at Red Flag Radio. If you'd like to get involved in the Victorian Socialist Campaign, please do get in touch with us via any social media platform or our website, victoriansocialist.org.au, where you can find out about upcoming events, volunteer information nights, or just generally what we stand for, our full uh policy platform is now online too so check all of that out and check out some of our previous episodes on this podcast too and please share this around if you enjoyed it thank you for listening this is red flag radio we have a world to win